Art Palace is sponsored by PNC Bank. Coming up on Art Palace. Walker's work, I said earlier that she's horror adjacent. The more I think about it, she's not horror adjacent. She's really deeply into the horror of it. But again, like I said, it's 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 a black female version of that horror. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is film critic and writer T.T. Stern Enzi. This episode was originally a much shorter video for our online film screenings, but I enjoyed my conversation with T.T. so much that I wanted to share this expanded version. I also want to point out that this is our 100th episode. So congratulations to us, and thanks to all of you for listening. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, My name is Russell Eyrig. I'm the Associate Director of Interpretive Programming here at the Cincinnati Art Museum, and I'm here with film critic T.T. Stern Enzi. So we're going to be having a conversation today looking at the world of shadow puppets and how they relate to to the artwork of Carol Walker and also to films like Candyman from 2021 and Lada Reiniger's uh, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. So you just saw the exhibition. Yes. For the first time. And I've given you no time to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need any time. You don't need it. I was like, march down, march you down here and said, we're going to start. Uh, so this is going to be very... Uh, very from the gut. Right. So, what were your uh, initial just impressions of the exhibition? I guess we'll start there. Well, you know, it's fascinating. You mentioned sort of this whole from the gut response. It's from the gut about the exhibition, but in a way, it's also from the gut for me about the film, too. Oh, really? Because I haven't seen Candyman since I watched the screener for it before it came out. Yeah. So, it's fascinating to me because as, I was, as we were walking through the exhibition, the power of some of the images from Walker's work, I feel like they were playing with my mind in terms of what I remembered about the film. Hmm. hmm. Like shadowing your actual memories of it? Like, Yeah, because I'm in, there are parts of it now that, again, I was, I remember being immediately captivated by the idea that you have, you know, that shadow puppetry and the silhouettes being used as a, as a, a storytelling device to remind us about the past. Right. And that the history of this character and what was going on. And, and now in my head, I'm, I'm re-remembering or at least I'm attempting to re-remember yeah. that history that we were told. But because of the reality of memory and how we misrepresent what actually happened the further we get away from it, I'm doing that now and I'm consciously doing it now with what we've seen yeah. you know, in the exhibition. So, the, yeah, the, the immediate piece of that for me is I'm intrigued by and I'm thinking about a couple of the quotes from Walker herself that are interspersed throughout. Mm -hmm. And again, the primary one that makes the most sense right now is this idea that, you know, she's not a historian. She's an unreliable narrator, which I feel like now I'm an unreliable guest on stage (laughs) because I'm, I'm not as concerned about exactly what happened in the film in relation to the exhibition. It's kind of like, well, wait a minute. I just want to see if I can on my own, piece those two things together. Right. And right. come up with a new narrative. Right. 
which may or may not be accurate to what actually happens in these movies. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I, that's funny though, because I was thinking about, I actually probably have a fresher view because I just watched the movie like a few days ago for the okay. first time. Mm -hmm. And then I sort of fast forwarded through a lot of it to refresh <laughs> myself today. So I may be a little, a little cleaner on my memories of it. Um, but one of the things I loved, uh, about that, that relates to that quote is the first, I, well, maybe not, it's maybe the second time we see shadow puppets used in the film is that retelling of the original Candyman. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also, an unreliable narrator telling it because they're not getting the details right. And we, we see how the sort of events of that film have like been transformed into legend right. at this point where um, the things we know from watching that movie have been kind of mutated a little bit. Uh -huh. Some, some extra gory details are added in uh, to make it a little like, you know, sexier the way, we we enhance a story when we retell it, right? <laughs> That's right. Right. Um, so yeah, and and those those shadow puppets in Candyman are always used to uh, illustrate a legend mm -hmm. in a way. They're they're showing the past, um, and there are flashback scenes as well. But there is something interesting about them the way that like we always are aware of them as an unreliable narrator. Mm -hmm. uh, when we see them in the movie, we go, oh, yeah, okay, this is different. Whereas what I see in in shot as a film is reliable. Yes, you do have that. And again, I think that's it again for this conversation. The fascinating piece of that is with Walker's work. You know, as in the very beginning, as we're looking at some of those images from, you know, the antebellum South, and as she's as she's giving us this different reinterpretation of those events and mixing it with mythology as well. Yeah. It's fascinating that you've got that, you know, again, that kind of dual notion going on of, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting a version of the history, but I'm also getting it and seeing it through this lens of, okay, legend and mythology, which again, the film does that too. And you're mm -hmm. right. What we see in the actual flashbacks from the film are what we're supposed to take as fact. Yeah. But again, as an audience coming into it, you know, once you get that and then you get the shadow puppets, there's this question of, well, which one of these do I really want to pay more attention to? Yeah. And that's the power of the shadow puppets because they draw you in to such an extent that for me, I spent more of my time thinking that's the history. That's mm. the story. And, you know, maybe it's also because as a film critic, I, you know, I'm spending my time watching films where I'm, I'm almost instructed to not trust mm. what I see in those flashbacks. Yeah. You know, if someone's going to give me, you know, what is supposed to be that filmed version, this is the actual account. We've been told enough over the course of years of watching film that, you know what? No, we don't necessarily always have to trust that. Yeah. So the beauty of what Walker's work does, it sets up this idea from seeing her work in the exhibition to then seeing these shadow puppets in the film that are inspired by her work. It's like, well, wait a minute. Maybe this is the truth. Yeah. And if you go with that as, you know, sort of the framing device for it, then all it is is just another another perspective mm -hmm. so that at the end you know we are all decades and centuries away again going back to walker's work to what was what really happened yeah none of us knows what happened because none of us were there 
So I think in, in some ways what it does, and it's fascinating today because, of course, we're caught up in all these discussions about critical race theory and everything else. But, you know, at some point, these retellings are meaningful and they allow us to open ourselves up to the idea that there are stories that we don't know mm. and we haven't been told. So maybe it's not about necessarily trying to really get at the hard truth of things, but it's more about the idea of just let me take in these stories and then I will do what I do as a human and mix and match and kind of merge those images and stories and the histories and the mythology and everything else into something that feels right for me. Yeah. And, you know, again, to take it back now to the exhibition, I think that's what art actually asks us to do anyway. Right. You know, when you were there in front of a piece, it is about taking what the artist has given you and say, okay, I can incorporate this in with everything else that I have seen from the art world, from history, from my life, and I get to put, I get to put this in my narrative in some way. So how does this fit into my narrative? And that gives all of us the opportunity to basically be our own unreliable narrators. Yes. Well, yeah, when you were talking about like how we've sort of been trained to mistrust uh, certain scenes and movies as well, I, I was thinking about, yeah, I mean, a flashback is always sort of positioned as a memory as a well as someone's well. memory somebody so yeah mm -hmm. you're usually looking at it already through that lens of of this is a memory of a person and memories are very unreliable mm -hmm. um as you talk about that again we are saying that it's someone's memory and we are talking about this notion that those memories are unreliable because again our our grasp of what was happening in the moment slips away the further we get away from it. But mm -hmm. there's also the idea that those, those memories are somewhat unreliable too, depending on who's telling the story. Right. Because again, and history is a huge part of this, whoever's telling the story gets to tell and create that history that they want to create. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's unreliable, but I think there's, there's, intentionality behind that. Mm -hmm. You know, is it unreliable just because it's been 10 years, 30 years away and I can't remember what, exactly what happened? Or is it more that, wait a minute, I just have a story that I want to tell about that thing that happened 30 years ago. Yeah. And this is the, this is the story that I'm going to tell and it may not have any connection to the reality. It's just what I want to get out there. It's the legend that I want you to print as fact. Yeah. And I mean, and that is actually how memory works. Like that's the sort of disturbing thing about it. I mm -hmm. think the more I learned about how memory works, the more I didn't trust myself <laughs> because I don't know. I think of it, I should say, as we have like a little computer in our brain and it's uh, down, it's, it's sort of got all the files or mm -hmm. if you want to go even older, it's like a filing cabinet where you have all these things stored away. And when you need to remember it, you go and you pull out the memory and you look at it and you go, oh yeah, that, that happened. And then you put it away. But the way memory actually works is it is an act of creation. And every time you remember something, the old memory is destroyed and a mm -hmm. new memory is created. So the right. more you remember, something the more it is being mutated and transformed and it's always being transformed through the lens of today mm -hmm. and through your views and through that story you're telling yourself and the story what what it means to you so that right. that memory you have as a child that 
maybe was important for one thing. Now, maybe you're remembering it and pulling something else out of it and, and that's become important and maybe you've inserted things. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a way like people can have so easily have memories implanted, uh, right. you know, like that seems like that would be really hard to do, but it's not, you know, a, a really common thing is people hear a story told in their family over and over again and mm-hmm. they'll think they were there. And then finally, years later, somebody else said, well, you weren't even there. You, you right. weren't even born yet. And right. um, they've just heard the story so many times that they now think, yeah, I was there. I remember it. But that's how unreliable memory is. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm fascinated now as we're having this conversation and we're talking about memory and the unreliability of it all because it takes me back again to this walk through the exhibition. And I did this and I... I'm recognizing that I did this as we were walking through. What we saw on the walls, I took as a certain truth. Mm. But some of those steel cuts that are part of the exhibition that you see and you're able to walk around and just knowing, and this is the, this is the crazy thing that again, that I'm just doing as a person experiencing mm-hmm. that, I still, I can't touch that. But because I know and saw that steel and there's a certain tactile sense of it, you know, and you have the lights coming through it that are creating all those shadows, it has more immediacy to me. So, in some ways, it feels more truthful Mm -hmm. than what I'm just seeing on the walls. And as I walk through, I probably spent more time around those cuts. Yeah. You're, there was something about them that was kind of like, ooh, this, this, this feels more real to me. And you're referring to, just to make sure I got it right, uh, like the piece, the Burning Village playset. Yes. Um, and yes. then there's also another one whose title I can't remember, uh, sort of across from it. That's mm-hmm. almost like a little like circus train car. Yes. yes. Those two in particular. I, like I said, I walked around those multiple times. And as a matter of fact, the circus car has different cuts on mm-hmm. each side. So, again, you, it feels like you were getting multiple stories at yeah. once out of that piece. But like I said, not not because I could touch it, but just the idea that I knew that there was a different level of physicality to it. It felt more real and immediate. Well, to bring it back to the films, I think that's also when I was looking at those pieces today, because we were going 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 to be having this discussion, um, I was thinking about them in the way that they also feel like they have that physicality that the shadow puppets do in that you're mm-hmm. always very aware of this is a real thing, a real cut piece right. of paper or whatever mm-hmm. it's made out of. And I could imagine, you know, again, that sort of way that in those in in Candyman and in the in the some of Kara Walker's own video works that she's made, you see the hands manipulating mm-hmm. the 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 shadow puppets, and that's what I always think about when I see those steel cut pieces too. Is like because you, you want to touch them, I think as right. well. Like you want to get in there and play around with them and move them and manipulate them. Um, and so that was another connection I was making of like, oh, these feel, they have that same kind of physicality of the, those shadow puppets. And I was very aware while rewatching some of those shadow puppet scenes of, of, oh, this thing is slightly out of focus. Um, Mm -hmm. and the way like focus is used in those, which probably in most cases is instead of like using the camera to create focus, it's probably just like pulling the object forward and backwards. Right. Like, 
the closer to the screen, the more in focus. When you uh -huh. get farther back, you get out of focus and also larger. It made me just think about all of those, the, the way those things are made, which is always what I'm probably most interested yeah. in. But there's also this sense of dimension with it, which again is probably why in my case, I felt more connected to that as the history versus just the flashbacks that you get. Because the flashbacks are just, it's just film. Yeah. So, you don't have that that tactile physicality to it. Well, those those pieces are also the the Carol Walker uh, sculptural pieces in the, that playset. They are inherently very narrative um, mm -hmm. in the way that you see the way that they relate to each other in space and you create a story out of it. Mm -hmm. And then what's exciting about them is the way that you can change that narrative. Um, right. Like you can uh, pick up that piece. I mean, we can't obviously, mm. but <laughs> no, I totally you were, what you mean. Yes. If you were lucky enough to own that work, you could uh, manipulate it how and and create a new narrative. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, I was just talking with uh, Siana and Trudy, the co-curators of the exhibition, and and Siana told me, oh a lot of museums will change the layout of that piece mid-exhibition or mm. change it up periodically because that's something the artist encourages that she encourages you that there is not a set way right. to show it. I think how we have it right now is maybe the way she set it up initially and maybe photographed it and showed it. Mm -hmm. um, so, that's like one version that she likes, but it is not the only version and she could see lots of other ways. Right. To display it. And see, that takes me back to the difference between those pieces versus what you just see on the walls. Mm. Because there are a number of, you know, the pieces that you get as you're walking through that you understand are kind of framed pieces that you were seeing, you're seeing individual segments of a narrative that's being told as well, but you can't manipulate those mm. in the same way. Yeah. Those have to stay coherent and connected from start to finish. Mm -hmm. And there's something interesting about that because, yeah, for me as a film critic, I'm looking at some of those and I'm thinking, wow, it has the sense and the feel of, you know, that, that movement that we have to take to get through this narrative. Yeah. And it's, it's one that we, un we understand and we know because we are being led step by step through yeah. it. We, but we don't have any control and we can't play around and manipulate that on our own. And I'm, again, I'm far more intrigued with the ways in which we are able with those other pieces to, to break them up and to manipulate them ourselves. Because like I said, for me, it is ultimately about how we can become our own unreliable narrators as we're taking all of this in. I, I hadn't maybe made the connection to the the sort of filmic qualities of, um, I, I'm thinking most specifically about um, Emancipation Approximation, which mm -hmm. is the first large work you see. It's a series of screen prints right. um, that fills an entire room. Um, and it works often in like, I think they're even called scenes. Yes, Like they are. they're written as like scene one, scene two, things mm -hmm. like that. So, there'll be a series of prints um, and they function almost in the same way a comic book does. Right. Uh, like panels. Like a graphic of a, novel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you have these different panels and so, you re read them sequentially. But then, of course, they're not always easy to necessarily understand in, in, this, in a really clear narrative way because what's happening is sometimes very ambiguous or mm -hmm. 
you know, really unclear um, because of the silhouetting. You don't get all the information. You know, you're right. you're you're given a lot of information, but your mind has to fill in a lot of the gaps. And you go, oh, is this? I think that's what I'm seeing. Ugh. Is that what I'm seeing? What is this? I think the next step is like from doing sort of stop motion animation and the way that mm-hmm. Reiniger is using those techniques. There's like a similarity there where you're setting up one scene and then you set up another scene. Uh, the difference there is the mind is filling in the gaps between Kara Walker's individual screen prints versus literally putting every... I mean, I guess they're the same in a way because really the mind is filling in the gaps in the stop motion are, animation as well. Right. You are it's, doing it in, either, in, in each case. It's just a smaller gap. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as, you were, as you were trying to figure that out yeah. just now in my head, I was kind of like, okay, there's this question of are you going from interpretation to almost like an, a, a reintegration of what you're getting? And I was trying to figure out well, what, what's really the difference between those two terms and the way that we're talking about it now. And I'm not sure there's that much of a difference. Yeah. Because you're right. You're still, you're, you're still filling in gaps. Yeah. And again, and you're right, it was the emancipation approximation pieces that, uh, yeah, you're getting those, again, like we normally get or understand how comic books or graphic novels work. And you were supposed to go from one frame right. to the next. You can't go, you can't jump from one to four mm-hmm. because that jump would be, too much for us to try to figure out, especially if you're kind of bouncing around all of those images. It, it becomes a jumble that makes no sense. Yeah. And at the end of the day, in each case, it is about how we make sense of what we're getting. Yeah. So, one thing I was kind of curious about in relationship between thinking about Candyman and Carol Walker is, is Carol Walker making horror? And what is the relationship to horror in that work? You know, there are moments that I do believe, I don't know if it's exactly horror, but she is, she's definitely operating in a horror adjacent kind of way. Yeah. And it's, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, so I'm glad you're here as a museum (laughs) rep who can like, you know, refocus what I'm thinking about. But those Harper's Weekly Mm. pieces. Yeah. Where you have, you know, the actual you know, pieces from Harper's that are telling stories from the battlefield about what was going on during the Civil War. And then Walker imposes images on top of those. And in some cases, the images that are imposed on top, you know, they're the silhouettes, but they're even cut, they're cutouts within the silhouettes that take right. us back into the Harper's piece as well. But we can't see everything. Yeah. In some ways, those images kind of remind me of the deaths in Candyman. In what way? Because we early on are not given the opportunity to really see exactly what happens when people say Candyman, you know, right times and, you know, the horror starts to happen or we're getting it, we're getting images of it or views of it from distorted perspectives. Yeah. So, in the- so you know that there's something there that's going on and you get a hint of it, but there's something, there's something over that or something that's, that's obstructing your view of what's actually happening. Yeah. The and that thing- obstruction is probably there to protect you <laughs> from what you would, what's really going on. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I hadn't thought of that. The, so, the, the, the new uh, sort of gimmick, I, to, <laughs> I mean, that, it sounds meaner than I mean it. But in Candyman 2021, uh, when we have these Candyman 
death sequences, these kills happening, um, they're only seen through reflections or Candyman himself is only right. seen through reflections. So you'll maybe see a body just sort of like floating across mm -hmm. the floor, being dragged by an invisible force and in a reflection in a window or a mirror mm -hmm. or something in the background, we'll, we'll get a glimpse of him. So yeah, there is an interesting relationship there of like, the sort of seen and unseen, mm -hmm. uh, which is definitely a big part of of Carol Walker's work. Of, of right. and and that piece, those pieces, the Harper's uh, pictorial, where yeah, y you kind of want to like look or peek around mm -hmm. um, what she's blocking in some cases. Right. Um, There's a horror, and there are probably levels of horror in what harper's is giving us right and she's covering it up and so like i said sometimes it's complete so that we're only getting that one silhouette but then there are also those other moments where there's something inside the silhouette that is cut out mm -hmm. that still leads you back into the horrors of war but you can't see it and feel it completely and you're kind of like well hmm, i know there's something going on there but what is it and it takes me back when i go when i think about the film the one sequence that where this feels like it's the most resonant is the bathroom scene mm, with mm -hmm. the girl. So, there's the, there's the one girl who's in the stall. Yeah. As the other girls are out there and they've said it and things are happening and she can't see everything. But yeah, she'll see, you know, a body from the bottom of the stall or whatever, but she can't really see. And at some point in that case, it's kind of like, yeah, you don't want to see that. Yeah. And you know that she doesn't want to see it. Yeah. But it does have that same kind of feel as the, as those Harper's uh, weekly pieces. Well, and uh, I think like one of the girls' compacts falls mm -hmm. down. And then you get the And you see, she, you, you kind of see her viewpoint of seeing this very small like little window into the horror that's happening through this little like me makeup mirror. And then, yeah, you'll, okay, I think you only get really one glimpse of Candyman walking by like dragging somebody but uh -huh. you're getting sort of blood splatters and other things you also have a really weird effect in that moment where there's a bee lands on the compact right and then i think another bee's the reflection like splits uh -huh. and and it crawls underneath the bottom mirror and un and through the like invisible <laughs> the sort of ether and up into the other reflection and they do that a couple times where they have like a bee on the other side of a reflection which mm -hmm. is uh, an interesting idea but yeah that's a really cool connection i hadn't i hadn't thought of there like i said yeah that for me and again it takes me back to that bathroom sequence where we get that and this has ne doesn't necessarily have anything to do with that or that question but the other piece of this is i was walking through through the exhibition that was intriguing and Nia DaCosta is the director of the film, you know, and again, I think she was one of the co-writers with Jordan Peele and there was probably mm -hmm. one other person involved as well. Just this notion that our protagonist is an artist as well. Yeah. And there is something about the idea of walking through Walker's exhibition here and you know, the protagonist in the film is, is a black man. I had a couple of moments where I was kind of like, wow, like what would that film have been like if we had, if we had had a black woman mm. as the protagonist? And then, of course, it was kind of like, well, does it need to be Walker? And I was like, no, it doesn't need to be her, but there would have been a really interesting and richer kind of connection to it all if you were using her work as an inspiration 
but you had another black woman who maybe found another way of expressing these ideas and these horrors and the mythology of it all, I think there would have been something more meaningful out of that. Not to take anything away again from yeah. what we got, but yeah, there's a whole other level of theme and rea- that would have would have kind of bubbled up to the surface in that. That was something I didn't expect in that movie. Um, not knowing a lot about it before I watched it, I was a little surprised that it centered so much on the art world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it kind of kept revealing itself in more and more ways. Like, okay, so our main character, he is an artist, he's a painter. So, I thought, okay, you know, I've kind of seen things like that in other movies. That's not too surprising. But then his girlfriend or fiance, I can't remember mm-hmm. their exact relationship, she also is in the art world. She works for a gallery. Right. And then she's trying to move up in the art world and, and move into the world of museums. Um, and so, there's a lot of commentary going on about the institution of art as well mm-hmm. in Candyman that I was, a little, I was like, oh, like, as a person who loves horror films and works in, in the art world, it's like so rare that I see these uh, overlap. I mean, right. I, can, I can only think of one other example, which is uh, Velvet Buzzsaw uh, that is, has, a, has some similarities as well, um, is, is maybe less successful overall, mm. but has some fun. it's probably more satirical about the art world and like... Um, in a, a comical way, I, I guess, uh, than, than Candyman is. But yeah, it was interesting to see that thrown into this mix and how the movie handled that. And also, I mean, I felt like a lot of times whenever you see your own profession in a film, all you can do is like pick apart all the things that are mm-hmm. wrong. Like, well, that's not really right. And I really didn't do that actually at all in Candyman. I was actually like... Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, maybe it's because it mostly focuses on galleries and I don't Versus, really work in the world right. of galleries. So, I maybe it's it's atrocious. But, um, <laughs> but it felt like, uh, I don't know, compared to Velvet Buzzsaw, which I did have a ton of things. was like, well, that's not really like, it's like, you know, you have gallerists and you have curators and you have artists and you have like all of and writers and they're all sort of like up in each other's business constantly. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I feel like those things are sort of their own little worlds more that like cross paths here and there, but not like necessarily everybody's like constantly on the phone with each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I understand why they would do that. But um, yeah, like you have the idea also as these being primarily white institutions as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's right. um, that's sort of made clear by, uh, you know, the gallerist. Um, but then it's kind of interesting because she meets uh, with that curator. I, I think she's supposed to be a curator at mm-hmm. the um, MCA in Chicago. Right. And, and who is a black woman. And so, it isn't quite so cut and dry, which I liked as mm-hmm. well. There's something too, just and again, I'm going to go back to that notion of how... The perspective changes when you have, you know, a black man as the artist versus a black woman. Because again, in in Walker's work, there's such grounding in this notion of telling, you know, playing around with mythology and legends and the history of race in this country. But she does it largely from the perspective of how that impacted black women. Mm -hmm. There are a few of those that involve men, but most of the work feels like it is very much focused on her perspective 
being a black woman, kind of looking at and dealing with these issues. And it's a different kind of horror. Mm -hmm. And I do, but I do believe it is, it is horrific in its, in its own way. And she's very explicit about that versus the horrors that you get from the film, which are primarily seen from a black man's perspective because, because the perspective is male there, the notion of horror becomes something that is just more traditional and familiar to us. We are going to see, you know, his version of that story and how he looks at the Candyman legend and what happens in the film still feels like, okay, at the end of the day, this is a male take on horror. Mm -hmm. And maybe, like I said, that's what's missing. If we had had a different shift and a different character to focus on, those horrors would have meant more and would have, you know, had a, a greater cultural re relevance to them, which is what I think they were kind of going for anyway. Yeah. But it would have, it would have hit a whole lot harder because Walker's work, I said earlier that she's horror adjacent. The more I think about it, she's not horror adjacent. She's really deeply into the horror of it. But again, like I said, it's, it's, it's a black female version of that horror, mm -hmm. which it takes a little while to settle into it, to think about it more, to be hit by it more. But once you get hit by it, it's like, okay, yeah, she is. This is what she's doing. Yeah. Um, that we, I'm not sure that I, I don't feel it here in the same way. It's just, okay, it's what I'm used to. Yeah. You could take Candy, you know, Candyman 2021 and it feels like every other horror film in one way or another that we've seen. And again, that's because most of those horror films have been from male perspectives. Yeah. So, there's nothing different about it. Yeah. Which is interesting coming from a woman director as well. Right. I'm a little surprised. And I was, yeah. I was thinking about that too. I'm like, mm -hmm. wow, what does that say about what Nia was doing? Because I feel like she definitely put her own stamp on that versus unfortunately how the film was marketed before it came out. Everything about it was, wait a minute, this is the film from executive producer Jordan Peele. Right. Like, how often do we hear about executive producers of films? Right. And it's part of the marketing. It was like, they hit us over the head with that all the time. So, ultimately, you do kind of walk into it with this sense that, well, yeah, there was a woman behind the camera, but we are being led to understand that there is a male overseer, if you will, yeah. of what's going on. I think also she's trying to tell a story that is about the violence towards black men and specifically, you know, she's bringing in police violence and things mm -hmm. like that. And that those are, you know, if we're looking at the headlines, those are stories that mostly affect black men. So, I think it makes sense for her to center that sure. uh, on, on there. I did get the sense, though, that there was like more to the to Brianna's uh, character that uh, mm -hmm. that they like we have this strange flashback at one moment where we see her father commit suicide mm -hmm. and it's like wait what's with it felt very like wait, there's there's got to be more to there's this more right to that story right yeah like there's got to be more and I, I kind of wonder like what ended up on the cutting room floor or mm -hmm. that like I feel like maybe she was a more interesting character perhaps than what we ended up seeing because it feels a little bit like, oh, okay, that was an interesting scene. I don't, I, I would have expected a little bit more there or something else to maybe make it gel a bit right. better with the rest of, of the film. And in the end, she is kind of, sort of does become the center of the movie by the end in a, mm -hmm. in a strange way. And it didn't quite feel as earned as I would hoped. Like, I, you know, right. like by the time that happens, I'm like, oh, I don't feel like I know her maybe enough to 
It feels like a big shift and I feel like they were maybe trying to set up some things but then just didn't ultimately have enough time to um, to give her uh, enough background. Right. That is, but it, again, that's a fascinating way that you phrase that. Like they didn't have enough time. Yeah. Because again, unfortunately, we know they probably had more time than any of us are, pro- are like truly aware of because thanks to, you know, the conditions in the world in 2020 and early 2021, I wonder if anyone had ever said, well, wait a minute, you know, yes, we have this finished product, but we could go back because it's not, it's not going to hit theaters. We have plenty of time. We could have, they could have gone back and, and, and boosted that up yeah. a bit more, but they chose not to. Oh, absolutely. And when There's I mean- a real choice in there. And when I mean, when I mean not enough time, I don't mean time mm-hmm. in production. I mean time on the screen. Right. Like, and, and the assumptions about also- how long a horror movie should be, right? Like, yeah. there's a, a lot of um, strange assumptions that, you know, we have no problem sitting through two and a half hours of superheroes, but horror uh, really starts to wear out its welcome at 90 minutes, you know? Right. Like, and I don't necessarily agree to that. And I think, like, something like Midsummer is a really great horror movie that mm-hmm. is, like, two and a half hours and and so i think you can make that movie and it's interesting i think there just probably were you know studio pressures and and things saying like okay make it shorter make it shorter probably my my assumption i have no (laughs) no knowledge Uh, i am just making assumptions of what i saw and how it felt but yeah i could be wrong you know i would also say just as a complete aside the the example that you just pulled up of you know the longer horror films with midsummer also had a female protagonist yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, ultimately, also a movie that is dealing with issues of trauma and mm-hmm. grief and uh, albeit not a sort of uh, intergenerational trauma, but like a very focused one, um, I think deals with all of that more successfully as well. Right. But I mean, they're, I think, very, very different movies. They're very different so. movies. And again, the fact that you don't have that focus on art that you have here, that yeah. again, we can draw back to this piece and this exhibition in that way. But because we're going back to that, I just still feel like, wow, there there feels like there was a missed opportunity, even you're probably right. You don't necessarily even have to do that much to change Anthony's character and perspective. You could have, again, but you could have built in more of Brianna's story yeah. as well. And, and by doing that, that could have been sort of that link between the two. And a great way to kind of illustrate this difference between the societal horrors that black women experience versus black men. Mm, yeah. There, there's, there would have been an opportunity and you potentially, and again, you know, speculation about a film that, you know, that we we're just talking about that's never going right. to happen is, is <laughs> silly and pointless, but it's what critics do all the time anyway. <laughs> um, but I love the idea of that. And again, you wouldn't necessarily have had to extended the story that much further it still could have been in a, you could have gotten it in under two hours but you could have beefed up her segment of it yeah and then made those connections yeah i think maybe uh, my sort of backseat driving version of this would be like uh yeah you from the start tell two kind of two stories and mm-hmm. you start with both of them as sort of the main characters and really give each equal time and i think it makes your ending a little more successful in this movie um because yeah i think we spend the vast majority of the movie focused on anthony Mm -hmm. and you know brianna's only getting a little bit of time here and there and she's 
she's an interesting character when we see her, but she just doesn't have the screen time. And I don't feel like up until that very end, we're ever really seeing things that much through her, her perspective. Right. I think a lot of this movie is also clearly meant to sort of correct the sins of the 1992 version of this mm-hmm. movie. And maybe like another problem I have with Candyman 2021 is that I can tell that a little too clearly. <laughs> right. Like it's a little too obvious that that's what it's doing where it's like, okay, Candyman 1992 is like solely from a white perspective. Right. And it's like almost everything you could go through. Let's like almost like you have a checklist of like, here are the problems with Candyman 92. And now we're going to do it like the opposite. And yeah. and so, you know, it doesn't necessarily, it does it in a very different way also. Like it is a very different movie. Like I mm-hmm. don't think they're kind of all that similar in, in a lot of different ways. I think this movie is much more of a slasher movie in a very mm-hmm. traditional way of, at least in those scenes, it's a little right. odd in that like, it's not a slasher movie in that we sort of are introduced to all these characters and watch them get picked off one by one, but it's more like we're kind of introduced to some characters who get killed off. Right. One. And that's also another problem is that like, I think it works better when we care about the people that mm-hmm. we're watching get killed. And I think this movie actually is trying to make us hate most of the characters that get killed a little bit too hard. Like, um, Oh, because they're easy. They're, yeah. they're, they are much easier. And again, they are, they are types. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're stereotypes just as much as, um, you know, I think Candyman 92 is guilty of making black stereotypes. Mm-hmm. I think Candyman 2021 makes a lot of white stereotypes. Sure. And yeah. I think they're also, even if not not to say necessarily stereotypes of white people in particular, but stereotypes of like types of, you know, like mm-hmm. the smarmy gallerist, the, right. the sort of, like, you know, they're, they're all a little too easy. Yeah, um, it is. And again, it is very specific to the to the moment that we're living in. Yeah. In terms of those types. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm fascinated by the talk about Brianna's story and how if we had gotten more of that. And again, the, the two tracks that you have. And I'm going to pull in another film that has nothing whatsoever to do with any of the stuff that we're talking about. But it's reminding me of To Live and Die in L.A. Okay. Because that's one of those, that for me, seeing that film, I think it came out in the late 80s, early 90s maybe. But when it came out, it was, it just took that idea of, again, you've got, you know, a traditional kind of crime thriller and a story. You're following a protagonist and then not to, I'm going to issue a spoiler alert here. For a movie from the 80s. Yeah, but in reality what happens is you lose that main character maybe two-thirds of the way through the film Mm. and you end up following his, his, you know, a partner that he picked up along the way and that person then becomes the focal point who has to finish the story out. It feels like that's kind of what we were supposed to feel with Candyman 2021. Mm. Something, you know, you get Anthony's story up to a point and then you're right, there's sort of a transition or a setup towards the end where we lose him and we pick her up, but we don't ever feel like we knew her enough for that to work. Yeah. And in To Live and Die in LA, it did work because yeah. we did get to see this guy work with that, that first protagonist long enough and, you know, they butted heads and did the whole deal so that eventually you did know him so that once it once it becomes his story 
you're comfortable going the rest of the way with him. Mm-hmm. And you, but you have to do, you have to do the work to set that up. Yeah. And there were a couple of hints in Candyman 2021, but, but you're right. Once you get her at the end, you don't feel it, that that character earned that place that we're supposed to, you know, have with her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, something I liked to go back to the idea of the art connection and the way it depicts art. I mean, one thing I liked in Candyman 2021 a lot is uh, the evolution of Anthony's artwork. Mm-hmm. As he transforms, he's transforming, so does his artwork. Um, and I personally liked his, the more horrific he got, I liked his artwork more. <laughs> <laughs> I like it's kind of funny because the the beginning and they they show his artwork and I I think the gallerist gives a sort of unfavorable review and I was like I'm kind of with him mm-hmm. on this one I'm like it's a little weak um and I actually like his his girlfriend looks at his new painting she's like oh it's a bit literal isn't it <laughs> and I love that like there those those opinions felt very real and instead of a lot of movies where it's just like whatever you're looking at people are like it's amazing like right. every, you know most things like, there's not really a lot of criticism towards art in in movies i feel like people just are like it's it's wonderful but you know it's you see that though in how art is portrayed in film just in general whether we're talking about fine art or writing or anything else yeah you have you know films about writers and there's all there are always those moments where it's kind of like oh yeah they just read you know an excerpt of their latest work and you listen to it and you're kind of like really that's yeah that's what we're taught that's this is great writing in this world I'm I'm not sure I want to live in that world if that's is that if that's what we're getting. But yeah, there's film in general in terms of how it it looks at and portrays art always tries to give you this sense that well yeah we're just gonna love this and the world's gonna love it and but the, there's there's not enough of the harsh criticism in there to say well wait a minute maybe this isn't really that great well that's that's the other thing and this actually uh, I was to go back to velvet buzzsaw um I feel like that was a movie where that was everybody had only great things to say about art usually and mm-hmm. it like um, and there's something like most stories about the art world in movies are usually just variations of the emperor's new clothes, right? Like mm. that is like, we got one story to tell about art and it's the emperor's new clothes and that's kind of it. It's like yeah. the, especially contemporary art, I should say, because, um, I feel like that's what usually gets the, that sort of critique of, of like, haha, isn't it funny that they think this is meaningful? Right. And so I, I didn't. I never got that sense here. I think like it, it treated contemporary art like it exists in the world, and it's it's a thing that people do. And uh, uh, but actually, I another connection I was thinking of was when I saw his paintings. There's something that made me remember the painting, uh, the controversial painting of Emmett Till that was in the mm. Whitney Biennial a few years ago. Okay. Um, that was b- painted by a white woman. And it became this whole ordeal because of like, this isn't your story to tell. Like, this is not your story to sort of sensationalize and Mm -hmm. put out there. And it became this huge uh, ordeal. And so, it was interesting because there was like something a little bit similar in Anthony's later paintings that have... I mean, they're not one for one. And actually, I like the paintings in the movie more. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. But there's something about the way they turn sort of violence into gesture 
and that connection of like abstract expressionist like gesture um, that we see or, or maybe in an artist like Francis Bacon mm -hmm. um, where the treatment of paint becomes violent and that right. like is is what we're seeing reflected there. Um, but it couldn't be more different than the work of Carol Walker in general, which is like so a, a little cold mm -hmm. usually in that way. Like when violence is happening, it's generally not terribly, it's not full of like expression and passion. It's no. something sort of detached mm -hmm. and a little bit like, huh. <laughs> There's also not that sense of the, the motion and the energy behind it either. Mm. You know, I'm thinking of a couple of those, those images from Walker's pieces where a young black woman in silhouette with the axe with the the heads that have been chopped off. Oh, that there. that's from the Emancipation Approximation is, series. Yeah. yeah, it's the same. It's like the finale of uh, that same story we were talking about earlier because you have the the swan at the mm -hmm. beginning, which kind of seems to be referencing like Leda and the swan. Right. And then um, by the end, you have all these swans, white swans with black, with black heads. heads. And then you kind of see those first like floating in a pond mm -hmm. and then you follow, it kind of keeps going and then we start seeing like trails of heads of right. just like these decapitated heads and then the final panel is just this woman standing with an axe mm -hmm. um, next to a tree stump right. and then all of these heads around her. But yeah, it was it was a little colder and detached because you didn't have this sense of there being the action of removing those heads. Yeah. It was like the work was done. Right. Right. And I mean, there's, there is a certain horror in that because you know what has been done, mm -hmm. but you also are not seeing or feeling the immediacy of it happening. Yeah. It's interesting that you said she was a black woman because I'm not 100% sure, but she is represented as a black silhouette. Right. But that's another angle of Kara's work where sometimes the race is like so over the top stereotype mm -hmm. that it's very obvious what we're supposed to be seeing. And then other times it's less clear. Right. And you're like, well, maybe. And, and you have, again, all of these other issues that come in of like how we interpret a person's race without seeing all of the details. So, we're also looking at how is she dressed right. and things like that, which is really interesting. Like, oh, that's not really related to race, is it? But is it? Right? Like, in this world she's setting up, that does become really important uh -huh. um, in how we position a person. So, yeah, I remember the woman is wearing this sort of big antebellum dress. Right. And it is, it is. It is interesting how what we bring to it, each of us brings to it, yeah. kind of changes the, or tense the, the, the notion of how we see that final figure. Because for me, I look at the whole notion of the antebellum period and I can't imagine a white woman wielding an axe. Right, right. So, in my head, I look at that and I'm thinking, unfortunately, that was a black woman. Because of like the labor, that. like right. the aspect because of labor. there's work and labor involved in that. And yeah, I just, I didn't necessarily go there. Plus, I, again, I see the, the unfortunate reality of how black people were used to inflict harm on other black bodies. Right. Which again was a, a way for, you know, slave masters and owners and white people to not necessarily have to dirty their hands. Yeah. Over what's going on. So, in my head, I see that whole scene and we get to the end and I'm like, yeah, she's black. But she might not be. 
Well, and, and that's the thing, like we, uh, we will probably never have a definitive answer, mm -hmm. but it was something I also made note of when I was looking at that piece because I had that question of that character's race came up to me as well. And mm -hmm. I, and I kind of looked at it for a while and I wasn't totally sure. And I kind of yeah. went back and forth and I was like, well, she could be white. She could be black. Yeah. I'm not really totally sure which way I think it yeah. is. It comes up a couple of times during the emancipation approximation. Yeah. There are, there are certain figures that you see along the way and I caught myself looking at it and I'm kind of like, well, I'm looking, I'm trying to judge facial features. Okay. Yeah. You know, what am I supposed to assume about this person based on, you know, and again, you could go either way in those cases. And it's just like, okay, at some point I'm going to make a judgment and then kind of move on. Yeah. Which again, it gets back to this, the initial idea of the unreli you know, unreliable narrator. And at some point when we each approach that work, we make those changes, we make those decisions for ourselves. And then that becomes our new narrative. I mean, were there any other connections that you made between Carol Walker's work and these films and, and styles mm -hmm. that we're talking about that we haven't you talked about yet? There's one that I, I'm struggling to make the connection. And so I'm, I'm worried that I will fumble through this and it won't come out <laughs> in a coherent kind of fashion. But Welcome I, to my world. <laughs> I love the quotes from Walker that are interspersed. Mm -hmm. And we, we talked about one with the unreliable narrator. I've been killing that one the whole way. Yeah. But there's the other one about the black hole. Oh, yeah. And the black hole being kind of what every star longs to be. That's, that quote stayed with me and I was trying to figure out how it connects to the film. And I'm again, I'm like I said, I'm not sure that I have an exact notion for how that works. It's fascinating to me that we, and again, as a critic and, you know, I, I think I mentioned to you earlier, I got a Truth and Reconciliation Project grant last year or at the beginning of this year and worked through that. And as we have spent so much time talking about race and representation, as a black critic, I spend even more time kind of thinking about ways in which if I don't see myself on screen in stories, I'm always trying to insert myself in those stories. And by doing that, I'm changing, in some cases, I'm, I'm completely changing or maybe even obliterating the narrative that's presented to me. Hmm. But as I'm doing it, it's kind of my way of saying, okay, if Elliot from E.T., just as a random example, I see E.T. as a young kid, early, early teens maybe, and look at that world and I'm not there at all. But it's a beautiful, fun world for a young kid. And I'm like, okay, well, boom, I'm going to insert myself into that world. Once I do, kind of like a black hole, I change hmm. everything about it. I, 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 I turn it into me. You know, it's, 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 it's me kind of pulling all of my experiences and longing for an opportunity to be seen in that kind of story. And I'm, I'm basically sucking all of that other stuff out. And trying to find ways to 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 turn it into something that looks more like me. But I think that I mean again, it's funny because you were saying like not wanting to go back to the unreliable narrator, but a lot of the stuff we were talking about of of how we do that with everything. Mm -hmm. So it's like I, I see what you're saying, but at the same time, it's like yeah, but isn't that what we always do? Like in in a way, we do I, that all the time. I think we we do, but I and. 
you know, I remember and I had a podcast interview with one of my best friends that I grew up with. And it was funny. I mentioned E.T. because in that podcast, my buddy Dave remembered the fact that we went to see E.T. together. It was probably one of the first films that we've seen. We saw together. And I've known, obviously, I've known this guy 30 plus years. And our different perspectives of what we were seeing and, and experiencing on that screen, you know, yeah, we were both young teen, you know, like 12, 13 years old seeing that film. But he had less of a journey to insert himself into that story mm -hmm. as a white guy than I did. Yeah. In a lot of ways, not that much had to change for him. There were some subtle, some subtleties for his own experience and longing that, that was there. But what he had to do was very different than what I had to do. Mm. And it's in that sense of sort of that hole that has that is usually missing that that black viewers go through we've we've always had to exercise that muscle and that draw of of changing and reinterpreting those stories that we're presented with until now mm. and i feel like i've been a bit of a curmudgeon you know in the last few years because and it, you know, I, I have enjoyed the, the changes that we've seen in the world and this idea that representation matters more. And that means that studios and producers and filmmakers are saying, yeah, we want we want to present more of these stories. We want to give more opportunities to find those filmmakers, find those artists, find those actors, get them involved in this process. It's a great thing. And I'm never going to say that it's not. But I will say what it does is it means that younger generations will not necessarily be activating that muscle in the same way that my generation and the generations before me had to. And I'm a little sad about that because there's something about it that, again, I'm recognizing a, a higher level and degree of creativity that you had to exhibit. Mm -hmm. You know, and to utilize, there's a generation of, or generations to come of, of young black audiences who won't have to do that, won't have to flex that muscle, won't have to play around and think about the world in that way. And I feel a little sad for them, I, even though they're going to see themselves in much different ways right. and will probably be very happy with, or if they aren't happy about it, they'll be able to say, well, wait a minute, I'm going to get out there and, and know that I have the opportunity to change what I'm saying. But yeah, there's, there is, there's a little weirdness in me that like, yeah, I liked having that muscle. When you were, when you were talking about that though, it was funny because I wasn't sure where you were going. I wasn't sure. No, I, wasn't I wasn't sure where sure. I was going either. <laughs> no, no. I wasn't sure where you were going to end up and I was actually really happy where it ended up because when you were describing, I was like, this is like kind of how queer people are really resistant to like anytime somebody's like, we're going to make a, a new gay teen romance and almost invariably every gay person over a certain age will hate it. Mm -hmm. And I think we it's the same exact thing that we've had to work to put ourselves in things for so long and we kind of like the work <laughs> right you do and, and and i i struggle with that and you know i i find myself in classrooms talking to students about this stuff and i have to catch myself because again i'm like i don't want to be that dude that i walk away and they're just like Psst. 
whatever, you struggled. And I'm like, no, I can't honestly say that I struggled that much. Yeah. Like I, I, I have this conversation with my mother and I'm, and I catch myself with her like, yeah, I can't really talk about struggle because I didn't struggle like she did. Right. You know, so I, I don't want to be that guy that's like, well, yeah, my struggle was so great. And then the next generation comes along and they're like, really? Was your struggle really that hard? Cause yeah. But again, it's, that's just part of that generational kind of divide. But I, but like I said, I think there is, there is a certain strength that we should acknowledge that we had. There is a skill set that we had to develop in order to interact with these works. Yeah. But that, that act of creation is a powerful thing. And I just worry. And again, like I said, I, it's not a, it's not a comparative kind of thing, but it is a worry that I I wonder if you're 20 years old today, are you going to lose that creative kind of switch mm-hmm. that I have? You know, you're not gonna you're not gonna have to use that muscle in that way, which means it will it may potentially disappear. I think probably what we both like about that is that it's. It's that an act of interpretation and that, that that's the fun of it, right? Mm-hmm. It's the interpretation that's fun. It's, it's the, the trying to pull the thing out that's meaningful to you, even if it wasn't really made for you. Right. Um, and trying to figure out, oh, this resonates. And I, I think it's interesting when there are those things that culturally do seem to resonate with certain audiences, despite the fact that they weren't really made for them. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there are plenty of movies that have become sort of like strange, queer, like, texts almost that were never have no queer people behind them you know and that just something about it like hit the right sensibility just resonated with people um and it's just like sort of more fun i was i was thinking about this a lot recently like uh, and i think i came in and again i feel like a grandpa as well um when i say this kind of stuff but i was like man I really would like to see gay characters in movies who don't act like boring straight people. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, like I went to Eternals and I came away just being like, <laughs> why right. are these gay guys so boring? Like, right. why are they so dull? And like, I was thinking about the gay uncles and Mrs. Doubtfire and I'm like, I miss those kind of gays. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like guys that like like you would look at and you're like, oh yeah, those that's a gay couple. Like got it. And like they were but they also like they had fun jobs. They were makeup artists. They did cool Ooh. stuff. They did they weren't just like boring people. I feel like now gay characters in movie, like everyone's so worried about like being homophobic through or stereotypical or or something that they have to like now everyone has to be this sort of same bland homogenous straight person Mm -hmm. but they just kiss guys and (laughs) And that's exactly what you get in eternals yeah exactly it's like okay you could you could pull plug and pull anybody you want in the in the role of you know the partner in that and it's like yeah okay yeah. You put a woman in there and it's like, okay, that's the same movie. Yeah, it's the exact it same It doesn't movie. change anything. Yeah. You, know, you put a you put a white woman in that story and you're like, oh, there's an interracial couple. Exactly. <laughs> like it it is like it, it could be completely interchangeable. And that's like the thing that probably rings false is it's like these characters' experiences have had no effect on their lives in any way. Right. Right. And of course, like that's the other thing that's weird about that movie as well as like they are it is in the title they are eternal people and that has had no seemingly effect on their lives like when we got to that scene i just kept thinking about like 
the pathos of like watching your partner die early and all of these things like watching your kid like get old and all of this mm-hmm. stuff and it's like nope we're not gonna engage with any of that yeah like yeah. the idea of like how do these people even function as humans and and like what does that mean and like there's all of this like really big ideas that could have been tapped into and they're not at mm-hmm. all um but you know this is not an eternals podcast <laughs> <laughs> but it is again it, those are cultural issues yeah that are part of that film that well i say part of that film but they're barely part of that film right they are hinted at in that it sets the the stage is set but then left completely up to us to determine whether we want to go down those pathways or not and if you do go down those pathways which obviously we did you come away frustrated yeah but if you didn't, it was barely a blip on the radar for anyone else. Yeah. I, I mean, I just feel like it's sort of obviously, you know, had ambitious goals of being very diverse and having a, a very diverse cast, but then did not want to engage with those perspectives in any way. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, there's no, absolutely, like, I could change the race of any of these characters to any, it wouldn't change anything apart from the fact that like, maybe it would be weird if there was, you know, like a white Bollywood star or something like that might feel a little odd. Mm -hmm. Um, But otherwise it's like, there's sort of no perspective to anyone. I mean, as again, as an artistic director of a film festival that focuses on disability, I look at the speedster in there Mm -hmm. who's deaf and it never engages with this idea of her being deaf. What like that means. she's an eternal and she has all of these powers, you know, I guess you're supposed to go with the general message that because we don't talk about her being deaf as a disability, it is just seen as just part of who she is. We're supposed yeah. to embrace that. But I'm like, but that's not like how, like she, again, she's lived 7,000 years on this planet or more like that, right. like her interactions with people seemingly would have changed how we look at and talk about disability. Right. But it didn't have any effect at all because, yeah, yeah she's deaf and the world just kept on going and we see, we, we, we see that as a disability now and it's like, but we wouldn't have if we had seen a moment in her life where she was able to show and illustrate that. Psst, and and, and it's like you could, again, like this is a movie with magical people with finger lasers. Like you can really do anything you want in this world. Like you could set it in an alternate world where everybody understands sign language because of her existence. Right. 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 Like that could be a really fascinating viewpoint and at least would like acknowledge the differences between our reality and and instead of what we've got here, which is just that, like what you're saying, it's just like, oh, yep, she's deaf. Yeah. But she had no impact on how we perceive right. abilities in the world. Right. Just regular old <laughs> human abilities. It's like it didn't happen. So, I don't know where that, what that means. Yeah, yeah. No. But it's, but it's, it's still, it's still a fascinating kind of cultural bit that, that bubbles up out of there that, you know, like I said, we just, we don't know what to do with it. That's an unfortunate reality for like all of this. I mean, we, we live in a world now where when Black Panther, the movie came out, all of a sudden everyone was so focused and so excited about that representation of black superheroes, that notion of Africa as a, as a, as a different place and a place of power and influence in the world and, and having resources. 
beyond what anyone assumed or thought about, you know, on the continent at that time. But we have to think, too, about the idea that when the Black Panther was first introduced in the probably late 60s, he was a stereotypical character. Right. (laughs) At the end of the day, no, they didn't get it right. Right. It's just, again, we got it right. Right. You know, within the last five years. And yes, there were there had been moves to make sure that there was a progression to get that character to that point. But again, where it started, yeah, no, they they weren't thinking about any of that. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a feel good thing for them at the time, but it was it was feel good, but it was still rooted in stereotypes. I don't, yeah, but again, that like I said, that takes me back to that generational kind of notion and and the creative abilities that viewers and audiences have or will not have moving Mm. forward you know i talked about you know that experience of et with my buddy Mm -hmm. his interpretation and the ability to leap into that story was not as great i think we're we're going to get to the stage where as marginalized audiences as a whole Mm -hmm. we will be closer or getting closer to his vision and his experience of things. And there's a part of me that's like, I, I don't know that I would want that. Mm. And I love Dave to death. I do. He, I've known him 40, 40, 40 plus years. And I'm like, that's, I don't want I don't want that. Yeah. I, I, I want, I want to know that I've had that opportunity to play around with and exert that kind of power, which again, is going to take me back to that black hole quote from Kara Walker. What's so meaningful about that quote now is the idea that we understand the power of a black hole. And we understand it to be greater than just the notion of a star. Because she's right. The black hole is what stars really want to be. Well, thank you for being my guest today, TT. I am. It was a pleasure. I'm always glad to be here. I mean, I think you've been on the show, the, if, for the podcast, you've been on it three times. You are right. the, the, that is the highest number of times anyone's been on. So. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, congratulations. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm, I, now that I've, now that I've earned that top spot, it's all about extending it. Yeah. Just keep it going. Keep it going. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. The museum is currently open, but please visit our website for the most up-to-date information about operating hours and museum policies. Current special exhibitions are Carol Walker, Cut to the Quick, Simply Brilliant, Artist Jewelers of the 1960s and 1970s, and American Painting the 80s Revisited is back on view now on the second floor in the Schiff Gallery. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we also have an Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalao. And as always, please rate and review us to help others find the show. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum. 